Hey everyone, today's episode is brought to you by Rad Roller, my favorite self myofascial release tools. And try them, they'll be yours too. All of their tools are made specifically to contour to your body, engage with your skin, and provide gentle release to the myofascial systems. There are so many tools to choose from, so no matter what your activity, your pain point, or the body area that you're trying to target, there is definitely something that'll work for you. Follow the link in the show notes below, and don't forget to use our special promotional code HEALING20 to receive 20% off your first order. And if you're interested in learning more, you can always check out our catalog of videos specifically targeted to self-care, and many of them including the Rad Myofascial Tools. Go to YouTube and find our Movement Minutes to learn more about how to take care of yourself at home. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Healing Ground Movement, a podcast dedicated to revolutionizing how we think about our bodies and our health. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, DC, and I have lived my life in pursuit of holistic healing and care that goes beyond symptom management. If you've been listening and like what you're hearing, head over to your favorite platform and leave us a review so we can reach more people with our important message. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Healing Ground Movement. I'm Dr. Carly Hudson. And with us today, we have our most international of guests so far, furthest away. Um, Jake is co- joining us from Amsterdam. So Jake Borenstein is obsessed with unleashing human potential, seeing coordination towards shared goals as the main problem facing humanity and has shaped his career around the unique intersection of systems thinking, cognitive science, and the practicalities of executive decision-making. And I love that it just brings all of these big picture ideas into our own personal health. He currently delivers this as a partner and senior executive coach with the firm Talentism, working with C-suite executives and fund partners seeking greater clarity through hyper growth, pivots, executive restructurings and day-to-day challenges of leadership. Prior to his work with Talentism, he was a facilitator at the Integral Center of Boulder, Colorado, founder of his own consulting firm, Mandela Consulting, and director of the nonprofit Slow Money, applying the same principles of the slow food movement to finance. He was an investment associate at Bridgewater Associates, working directly with Ray Dalio on special research projects, building and trading systems for international currency markets. They said he currently lives in Amsterdam with his wife and adorable dog. And he's not working. He enjoys skiing, exploring the world, and long conversations in tonight with friends, <clears throat> new and old. Thank you for joining us, Jake. I'm so excited to dive into your whole history and career and health. You have so much to share with us. Oh, thank you so much for having mm-hmm. me. It's here to be here. Wonderful. Well, when we spoke before, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a little frog in my throat to start us off right now. Um, but when we spoke to get to know each other a little bit before, um, we you have such an interesting history starting in finance, kind of you know, a, an escapee from the corporate world and your own personal journey that took you from, you know, all over the United States, including my own backyard here in Boulder, um, to Amsterdam. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started on all this? Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit of a saga. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, so we can, I guess we'll, we'll start after I graduated college. I, um, you know, I didn't, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, it was one of those things where I was mostly kind of following the money and where I imagined I would be valued and feel valuable mm-hmm. and all of that. And the pitch to come to this hedge fund called Bridgewater Associates was basically like, we're going to pay you a bunch to like sit in the woods and be smart. And I was like, yes, yeah. thank you. I will sign up for that. Um, 
And it was, listen, like there was a, a lot that I got out of it. It's um, mm -hmm. for any of your listeners who haven't heard of it, it's an unusual place with a very strong culture, a lot of sort of self deconstruction, criticism, things, very intense place, excellent in a lot of ways, difficult in others. Um, but after about three years there, you know, I was, I was getting what I wanted from it. I felt valued. I felt valuable. My research was you know, on Obama's desk every day. It was like, felt like I was cool at 22 or whatever it was at the same time, like for lack of a better word, I was just dying inside. Like, well, yeah, I mean, it just seems yeah. like it's the kind of, it's the kind of career path that we are definitely, you know, graduating in, in the earlier part of the millennium, that that was what we were set to do, that that's, you want, you want the name, you want the credentials and you want the income and, and what else is there to value? Certainly not that old sense of dying inside. <laughs> Totally. And, mm -hmm. and the big question for me at that time was, it was really about like purpose and mm -hmm. just this deep desire to want to use my life energy to, to support life. I don't know how else <laughs> to say it. And I just had no idea how to do it. So I used at that point sort of the only tools at my disposal, which was like, think really hard about stuff and created a whole model of like, all the systematic problems in the world and everything that I could fix and got really into environmental economics and, you know, looking into how our economic machine is depleting the substrate of our environment and social connections and all this stuff. And like mm -hmm. ended up going on a journey of discovery with my extremely patient wife, where we went and volunteered on an organic farm in England and got certified in permaculture and went and hung out with all kinds of crazy activists and eco villages. And it was, it was, I mean, as a, in terms of hedge fund eject strategies, it was, mm -hmm. I would recommend it. It was good. Um, and we ended up circling back around to Boulder, Colorado, where I ended up being the director for a nonprofit called Slow Money. Um, and the premise there was for any of your listeners who have heard of slow food, mm -hmm. you know, it's the slow food, right? Has the, It's a similar idea applied to money. So, you know, slow food is all about like, okay, food just isn't calories, right? It's not like this... Mm -hmm treat as this mechanical thing often without realizing it or as a drug or something like that. Like yeah. you know, food is actually integral to the human experience. Like mm -hmm. you know, it's about your connection to the land, your connection to the people making it, your connection to the people you're sharing it with. What if we thought about money in the same way, right? Mm. Not just thinking about numbers in a spreadsheet, how to optimize a return or something like that, but thinking about our returns in terms of like, what can our money create in the world? Could we make our community stronger? Could we take some little portion of our investment portfolio for those who are lucky enough to have one and say, put it, you know, in saving the local bakery where your kids always have their birthday parties, where these mm -hmm. sort of centers of community or, you know, investing in heritage wheat seeds that are going to be healthier and more water, less water use and all kinds of things. So that was the idea. Um, uh, and it really changes the the metrics of what we're putting value on, because in all of these instances, it wasn't about a return on financial investment for more financial, um, you know, numbers on that spreadsheet. It was looking at more qualitative uh, abundance. You know, when you talk about the bakery or these small community driven areas, it's what do you get as a community because of this, not what money do you get in your pocket? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's exactly right. And, mm -hmm. and part of it, and I think my guess is we'll talk more about this as we mm -hmm. go. It's also just switching from sort of that very narrow object focus that we tend to have in our, in our mm -hmm. current society 
to, to thinking about the broader ecosystem and how it all connects, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, why do people invest money? They want to feel safe. They want to create something great for their kids. They want to, you know, have a healthy retirement. There's all these reasons, right? That they mm -hmm. think they'll get through a number. And yeah. the reality is that it's actually the whole ecosystem around you from the quality of your relationships with your neighbors, the relationship with your kids, the, the mm -hmm. quality of the food you're eating, the health of your overall community that actually determines so many of these outcomes that we think we're going for if we're just doing it via investing, right? Mm -hmm. So if you broaden that horizon to actually think about how do I need to cultivate this ecosystem to achieve what I really want, then it, I think, sort of leads naturally to the place that slow money ended up. Oh, that's beautiful. And it really, I like the way you're phrasing that about what do we think we're getting with the money, you know, that we're getting this security and we're getting this, but really then it creates this, I don't know, this next step you have to take. You have this money in your bank account and maybe that starts to come with scarcity mindset and there's never enough of it, but you have to then take that money to try and create that community, which lacks a little bit of that organic deliberate movement versus investing in what's around you as a first step, you really draw that net closer together. You totally got it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so listen, that mm -hmm. was a, that was a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. Successful. We moved about $55 million into a lot of these sort of small local businesses, which is very cool from the outcome side. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I got horrifically sick. Um, so <laughs> and he, he so, says with a smile, yeah, <laughs> I got a, I got an awful, awful, awful case of Lyme disease. I had actually Bridgewater is based in Connecticut. So, you know, mm -hmm. grounds for that. And I'm an outdoorsy guy. So I had initially gotten an infection there. Mm -hmm. And for any of your listeners who have any familiarity with Lyme, the way it works is that if you don't clear the initial infection completely or well, um, you can, you can get much, much sicker further down the line which is mm -hmm. what ended up happening to me. Yeah. So I went from, you know, I went from hard charging, running a nonprofit, doing this whole thing to couldn't read a page in a book, couldn't take a walk around the block. I knew I was awake in the morning because I was in pain. Um, and, and the doctors were telling me that there was a good chance this was the rest of my life. Oh. So yeah, I mean, it was just, and that ended up being um, three years, which, mm -hmm. you know, but if you're actually, and I, again, for anyone who's lived these kinds of things, like those three years means three months in, okay, what now? Six months in, is there a light at the end of this tunnel? One year in, I've been in pain every day, nothing's working, mm -hmm. like money is drying up, like what now, what now? Mm -hmm. Suddenly it's year two, suddenly it's year three. So, so yeah, it was it was a formative experience. Um, and, you know, I can look, I can look back now, I probably would have, you know, wanted to scream at someone if they said this at the time, but <laughs> I can look back on the gifts of it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what, what I think is super powerful about, and, you know, to put it, to wrap it in maybe more spiritual terms, like what's super powerful about this kind of just ego destroying event um, is that it just, yeah, it just wiped out all of my habituated ways of interacting with the world mm -hmm. and making sense of it, right? Like mm -hmm. the same tools I had used in hedge fund land, 
I never stopped using them. That was still basically my whole toolkit. It was like, oh, there's a problem. Like I will bash my brain against it until it is done. (laughs) I will just have more energy than other people. I will work longer hours. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, sure. I can always take something on on the weekend. Like there's always, that was it. That was all I had, like analytic (laughs) capacity and energy. And those were, that was my solution to every single problem I ever faced. And those levers were not just reduced, but gone, like totally gone. Mm-hmm. And what I and what I found in in their place was that what was left was basically just presence. Mm. That was that was pretty well, much the only thing left. And when it comes down to it, we can get ourselves so distracted by all of the what's next and the energy and the drive. And that's all very forward thinking or caught in the anxiety of what's happened behind us. And that ability to stay centered in the presence in the present moment and deal with what's what's right in front of you is not a very habituated existence for us, particularly um, as Americans. And so um, as we do all of these things, I, I like that, you know, you came up the gift of the, the gift of the Lyme disease and the gift of it knocking you down. And certainly it's not something you're going to say to someone in the middle of their chronic pain episode or in the middle of their flare up, but there becomes this opportunity that when you take away all of your habits and you take away everything that you've known about yourself, there is no other way of being except for what is right in front of you and what you want to learn to do, what skill you need to learn to do to have that next moment. It's an amazing gift to come back to a foundation of self, you know, if we can move around and pass that pain in, in some sort of way. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I would add something that at mm-hmm. least was critical for me. Um, like, let's be, let's be real here. It wasn't like, mm-hmm. I'm hit, like I was just, you know, zenned out all the time. Like <laughs> I spent most of my time just angsting about the future and trying to mm-hmm. avoid the present because the present was just pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the thing that caught me or the thing that, that was my net in, and that actually opened up that possibility of landing in that presence was my community, mm. was that ecosystem around me. I was incredibly blessed in a number of ways. One, to be in Boulder, Colorado, which is sort of a mecca for psychology and experimentation and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, my, my wife is just extraordinarily sensitive and intuitive and thoughtful and empathetic, and she carried me through in an incredible way. Um, but, you know, what, what got me was that my wife would basically sort of force me to go to this local place in Boulder called the Integral Center, um, mm-hmm. where, yeah, we would do these different practices, something called circling, which is kind of like an interpersonal meditation technique, different mm-hmm. forms of meditation. Um, and I ended up getting trained up in a number of them. And that was where I discovered that, yeah, this presence thing, it's, there's a value in it just in and of itself, right? Mm-hmm. That was what I was yearning for so much, right? I had lost any sense of being able to offer anything to anyone, which was so critical to my sense yeah. of self. Yeah. And, and I found that like just being there for people, just listening to them, being with them through whatever it was that they were in, Mm-hmm. was in and of itself incredibly powerful. But, and in saying that though, I don't want to lose the fact that it was that access to even being able to be trained in that, to being mm-hmm. able to have a place to employ that, that opened up that possibility for me in a way that I don't well, know if I had otherwise. 
And thank you for drawing attention back to the the pain of that presence, because I think um, I'm certainly guilty of it, even going through my own chronic health and healing, is that having gone through what I, I've started calling a healing crisis, the part of this healing journey where everything is miserable and awful and in transition and any way out is a leap of faith and hoping and grasping at the next thing. It is horrendously miserable and yes. lonely un unless you have a community unless you can seek to lean on someone. And I'm, I'm just as, as blessed and lucky. My husband is incredibly empathetic and, and helps to carry through as well. And the people that we surround ourselves with and that are willing to sit with and bolster you. Because in that depths of just physical, mental, emotional misery, you need that. You need your ecosystem, like you were saying. And and to see how you fostered that with the slow money movement as such a big value to come around and be privileged to it when you needed it as well. You know, we all take our turns lifting and being lifted. Yeah. And <laughs> I just, you know, I know this is something you talk about all the time, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just sorry that that's been part of your experience as well. Uh, I know that well, the gift is, is in it and, mm -hmm. and just sorry for any suffering you've had. And same, same to you. I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing that I know you've, because I've heard it, I'm assuming you've probably heard that it is because you've gone through this, you have this gift to share. You have that gift of presencing. You will understand. It makes you the doctor, the provider, the person that you are. And it does. Um, it can, if you see that opportunity of presence through the pain and through the discomfort but it is a journey and it is a lot of work. And thank you for, for calling that back to attention, um, you know, for our listeners and, and to remind me as well, because sometimes we, we push right through it and don't want to go back to what was hard. Yes. And I don't mm -hmm. like what you're saying. I, I don't think the gift is automatic, right? Right. It's a hard thing, right? And I remember mm -hmm. in some ways that that sort of self-recrimination while I was really sick was an extra one. Right. Like, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not making anything of this, right? That was one of the lines in my head. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like, there's a, to me, the key choice, and I see this both in the context of chronic illness, but al also consistently with my executive clients, mm -hmm. is the extraordinary potency of, of acceptance which is just goes against like every, especially if you're an entrepreneur, like every single muscle you have, right? It's like, yeah. if you ever accept, you know, if you accept someone telling you it's not going to work, it won't happen, right? That's, and that's not quite the acceptance I'm talking about, but it's like, it's the deep acceptance of the reality around you, including that the expectations you had were wrong. Mm. Like one of the biggest things that was so, such a threw me off and I think throws off many people who deal with any kind of health surprise is, and I don't know if this is, I think it's probably a cultural thing. I know for sure it was a me thing. The embedded assumption that health, that like full health, full ability is the natural state of being yeah. all the time. And that's just like, and anything that's not that is like an aberration, right? Mm -hmm. like, and so the, the part of what was so painful was the constant comparison to what I thought should be happening. Yes. And that was just, and until I dropped that, it was impossible to do anything else, right? Because mm -hmm. 
there's no room to try anything different or to take seriously what I would need to thrive mm-hmm. without accepting that, yeah, I had limitations and that's part of life. A significant chunk of life mm-hmm. is not being at full capacity or having yes. limits as a human being. And for executive clients, it's the same thing. It's like this, oh, I have to be good at everything. I'm going to spend all of my time being you know, the CEO that I think I should be because of what my dad told me or what I've seen on TV or whatever it is. And it's like, until you accept like, yeah, dude, you're a terrible manager. Like stop managing people. Like go tell the story of the company and hire someone who knows what to do inside. Like Mm -hmm. those options aren't available unless you actually start from a place of real acceptance. Yeah. And I think there is, there it's this fine line with this extraordinary potence of acceptance. You have such great turn of phrases. Um, this extraordinary potence of acceptance. It's not, uh, I, I think we sometimes want to make acceptance and resignation the same thing mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I felt the same way and that, you know, cause my, my whole health journey, I, I've never known anything different. And so I would waffle between I should be, a fully functioning non-injured human or resigning myself to kind of like that first diagnosis you got with your Lyme disease. Um, this is what it's going to be for the rest of your life. Um, and, and obviously for you, it, it has turned. And for me, it has turned as well, but there's this sweet spot of accepting what is without resignation. Yes. And that is the presencing. And that is hard and uncomfortable because accepting the daily pain that you are in or accepting the daily confusion that I have been in and then still having the audacity to hope that something else might come with it and that there is a growth around it is is such a a tightrope walk. And I think it takes a lot of courage. Yeah, no, it's, you're so, I mean, you're just so right on, at least, at least from where I'm sitting. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the language I would put around that or the, the advice I would give to anyone walking that tightrope in their own life right now mm-hmm. is the key thing to do there is, rec- is learning to recognize life as a process and mm-hmm. starting to, and starting to orient less to what you believe should be happening and more to the adjacent possible around what actually makes things better. Mm. So, so the, it's the difference, like for in the Lyme context, the difference between being there and being like, Oh, like, I can't believe it. Like I'm in my mid twenties and like, I'm now permanently disabled and Oh my God, like, does this mean that my, we're going to starve or like, I'm going to, you know, whatever it is, like all these sort of narratives about what it means and what it means about me. And I'll never be this and never that and da, 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 nothing can Mm -hmm. ever happen versus that's, that's sort of the struggling version, right? The resignation is like, okay, I'm just in pain all the time. So I'm just going to like play video games all day and like, whatever, I guess I'll move back in with my parents or whatever it is, mm-hmm. like that would be the, and stop trying to figure out if there's a way to improve my health. Yeah. And, the, and the version of the adjacent possible of recognizing the process is instead going to like, what would make my, what would feel good today? Or like, what could make me a little healthier than I am now? Mm-hmm. Or what would be something I could do that, that would be, yeah, something I could learn or something that would feel like a little stretch that would feel 
yeah, maybe hard, but yummy and possible from where I'm at right now. Mm-hmm. And it's that like, and, and trusting that that process of accepting where I'm at, accepting the reality of it, and then just starting to experiment towards what would be better from that adjacent possible. Like mm-hmm. that's to me where the magic happens and where you can break out of like the sort of the wobbling on that tightrope. Right. And it, it really orients you to the one small step in front of the other. And again, the, the, we'll stick with the tightrope imagery, which is that one small step is that what's one little thing I could do today. And really that, is, and we are talking a lot about health, but we are going to get to that management and the, the, the sweet, sweet, C-suite executives with whom you work, that it is all of health and all of success is built upon the one small step you know, the thousand little choices you make every day. It's not this heroic intervention that we've kind of been taught medicine is that we're going to sweep in and cut this thing out and change the thing. And then you will be so much better the next day. These heroic interventions have a lot of show and not a lot of outcome. The thing that has been shown time and time again through medical research and financial research in the business world, you know, I, I would hazard to say, pick any industry. It's what's the one thing that you do consistently day after day to slowly add to that pile of improvement, to add to that progression across the tightrope. And so as we talk about it in healthcare, you know, when we see see those um, managers and business owners and these large companies that have been, you know, burning through employees in pursuit of financial security, instead of to use another one of your fantastic phrases, these ecosystems of health that you could create within the businesses. Again, it's knowing what do you do well, what do you do poorly, and what are the small steps that you can do to progress towards a more complete story, a more complete um, offering, if you will. Yes, 100%, absolutely. And and part of that, and to me, part of that acceptance comes with just accepting the the weirdness of being the human animal, right? (laughs) Like humans are weird and we're this strange mix of, you know, thinking and creating and storytelling and at the same time like animal terror you know being both prey and predator and having all of these impulses that have allowed us to evolve to where we are today Mm -hmm. and so so much of that acceptance it's accepting both like you're saying what are we good at what are we bad at but also the acceptance that oftentimes we can't tell the difference because tell me more of that (laughs) like we're all just wired for confusion it's, it's inherent to who we are. Like there's all kinds of reasons, good reasons for us to lie to ourselves. Like mm-hmm. it's helpful in a lot of situations. And in some sense, like if you're, if a tiger shows up or you see a rustling in the bushes, like your best move is to just sprint, like just get out of there. Don't spend too much time like assessing if your judgment is right. And that same mechanism is the mechanism that most of us end up using all the time without realizing it that mm-hmm. things don't happen the way we expect. It triggers a cascade of things in our body. There's a bunch of hormonal stuff that goes on. It, our prefrontal cortex shuts down for the most part. Um, our limbic system activates. Like there's a whole cascade of things that happen in our body when we're surprised or confused by something. And the main way we have to deal with it is just classic like fight, flight, freeze, right? Like that's yeah. the, the standard thing. And I think we, I think at this point, most of us have heard of something like that or kind of recognize that that's a thing that happens. 
what I think we don't recognize is that that's actually the state that we're in most of the time. Mm -hmm. That actually most of the time we're just making snap judgments to protect ourselves from whatever the scary thing is. And we're not even thinking too hard about what it is. We're just like, okay, next, like, what do I need to do to, oh God, my coworker is gonna ask this thing from me. Like, they're such a jerk. Like, can I get away from it? Or like, oh my God, I so need my boss to like me. What do I have to do? Like. There's all these stories we tell, and it's the same thing, it's the same thing in health, where we're just oriented towards this, how do I protect myself and protect my idea of what should be, rather mm -hmm. than actually accepting the current reality and my own inability to parse that. And it puts us in this very, because again, we have this duality of, yes, we want to be present to the moment, but we also don't want to get caught in this short-term problem solving. Because yes. again, as we were talking about through health, through our health journeys, there is this, uh, this desire to hope, this desire to see into the future while, um, you know, sometimes wrestling with what is present in its difficulty or its abundance. And when we are caught, though, in a stress cycle, and as you're talking about the limbic system and all these parts of the brain that light up when we're stressed, if we make emotional decisions that are about short-term processing, again, run away from the tiger as fast as you can, not deliberate, you know, well, how far is that tiger? Is it going to make it through the bushes too quickly? Like, this, is, this is not where we're at. But when it comes to these ecosystems of health and nurturing our community and not stripping the earth of all of its natural resources and the minerals and nutrients we need in the soil so that we can become healthy humans. It's about, is my decision now going to support the world three generations, five generations, seven generations from now? You know, it's, it's the idea of planting that tree so your great, great grandchildren can climb it. So we have this bit of push-pull. We're in this constant fight-flight-freeze fight, fight, situation of short-term thinking, but our entire well-being relies on our community and generational thinking. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you've said it so beautifully. It's right on. There's, um, there's a concept from a woman called Bina Sharma that I love about most of us think of things in opposition as like problems to be solved, when in reality, mm -hmm. most things in life are polarities to be managed. Oh, yeah, I love that. So mm -hmm. what you're talking about, like this, this tension between, hey, like the moment is where a lot of the magic happens and like this long-term thing also is how you actually direct yourself towards creating something more beautiful. Like things take planning and like, gosh, we don't build cathedrals anymore that take five generations to build, you know, or mm -hmm. going further back, you know, we don't think about how, you know, we need to care for the buffalo herd today because that's what's going to feed seven generations down the line. Like that's just mm -hmm. not how we think, right? So how do you manage that polarity between being present to the moment, being present to your own blind spots, being present to your own process and accepting that and at the same time, holding a vision of something more beautiful that a more beautiful future is possible mm -hmm. like I'm, I'm with i think i'm mostly just repeating what you said <laughs> that's is right on i mean but i think it's so much the the tipping point that we're kind of at as a global society right now 
you know, we see um, across the planet in the last year and a half, two years, I mean, COVID obviously for 2020, but even before that, Australia was on fire. And in the midst of COVID, all the United States, Colorado and California were having unprecedented wildfires. The, the weather patterns are changing. Then we have this, um, you know, viral pandemic that has a tropism, has a desire to infect people with high inflammatory conditions and how much of the world, certainly we can speak for the United States, that we are not a metabolically healthy country. We, we have done, made so many choices for short-term convenience, and it is literally killing us. And we are at this tipping point of, are we going to change the way we fundamentally see our community and our ecosystem of health, or are we just, gonna ride this, ride this into the dirt and say it was, it was a good time here as humans. Thanks all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're here for a good time, not a long time, right? Exactly. <laughs> Jeez, baby. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that, that particular problem that you're talking about, uh -huh. like, obsessed over because there's not, like, there's not a good answer. Like, mm -hmm. it's really complex, right? And like, mm -hmm. one of the problems, right, is like, long-term planning and prediction is insanely hard like that was one of my biggest lessons from from my hedge fund days like if you can make any reasonable prediction about what's going to happen in the world like three months from now with say like 60 percent accuracy you're a genius like you're going to go make bank like that mm -hmm. and and it's funny right because i think most of us have all kinds of predictions that we're very vested in and all kinds mm -hmm. of long-term ideas and it's just it's like one thing that I've, I've had to learn and, and it's hard because it, my baseline personality is arrogant, like epistemic humility is critical, including like, I often just don't know what's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. And so how do I hold a long-term vision? How do I hold that sense of investing in future generations in these broader ecosystems toward more beautiful visions when essentially I have no way to know what's gonna happen in any meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And the only answer I have to that, um, there, this comes from something called the Sinefin framework, is um, when you're dealing with complex problems, complex defined as like any input is going to affect all the others, you can't actually solve it, like mathematically mm -hmm. speaking, all you can, you can't come up with solutions, all you can do is invest in capacities. Oh, I love that. And this is where I think we get back to that ecosystem of health idea where it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, we have no idea. Like global warming, like I don't, yeah, pro like is that going to result in things getting hotter? Probably. And some weird ecosystem could flip such that we go into a deep freeze. Like mm -hmm. who knows? Like there's so many ways that these complex systems play out. Mm -hmm. What I do know is that if I'm making choices today that are making better relationships, a healthier body, kinder world, investing in more freedom for people to explore and apply their gifts and coordinate toward, together towards hard things. If I'm investing in all of those capacities, I know that that's more likely to deal with whatever's gonna come. 
I like that focusing on capacities instead of outcomes, which is sort of the same thing that you were doing with the slow money movement. It's not about the financial outcome. It was about the capacity of the community and the needs of the community, which I will certainly say from my own experience over this last year, however much money I have or didn't have as things shut down and opened up, my community is what gave my entire year meaning and joy. And that I can look back on this year with a lot of happiness because of the people and the relationships that we invested in. Yes. And it's a capacity for support. With that capacity, you can get through the unthinkable. And certainly all of us are going to come up against the unthinkable in some way, in some form in our lives. Some, some of us daily, hourly, and some of us, you know, there'll be one catastrophic event. But it's still a capacity that we, we should hope to practice and invest in. Yes, absolutely. And mm -hmm. to tie it back to that thing we were talking about before, of like, as humans, we're wired for confusion and have blind mm -hmm. spots. So how are we going to think well about anything? That's where it comes back to that community. That's where it comes mm -hmm. back to the ecosystem, because that's how you solve it. Mm -hmm. like, you have an answer. It's you, you distribute the cognition across a trusted community of people who are going to play in good faith with you and help you see your blind spots and figure it out with you. That's mm -hmm. like all in the end, that's the only real answer we have is that we have each other. Yeah. And that's what humans have been wired for for generations and centuries, where exile became one of the harshest things that could happen because you are, you know, removed from your community and meant to survive and live alone. And life expectancy for humans drops dramatically when alone and outside of that community. So how does this then um, apply to the larger business world that you are currently working in. So I'm seeing the same values and the same themes just growing throughout your career. What are you seeing now in your work with talentism and, and these larger corporations? Yeah, I mean, all these, so, and I, I do want to be clear, I don't work with larger corporations. I work, I mean, gosh, depends how you define it. Like I work mostly with like fast scaling companies that are mm -hmm. going from, you know, they, they're starting out as like a couple million in revenue and like, 15 people and now suddenly they find themselves with 2,000 people and a hundred million dollars a year in revenue and heading towards IPO and they're like what just happened um Seems big but, to me I'm good with that <laughs> yeah, sure. um I think the I think the I think the key difference that I'm making is mm -hmm. that I do try to focus particularly on companies that are going through high change because I think that's mm -hmm. important context within all of this okay um, and I don't want to over generalize because there are places that are just big institutions that mostly running that's the reality but if you are dealing with high change um which I think most companies will end up having to deal with that sooner or later yeah all this stuff plays in like the the leader the blind spots that an individual leader has will shape the rest of the company around them it's going to shape the ecosystem right um like you see it all the time that, and it's it's often the things that we don't even know about, right? It's like, you know, oh, the the CEO is conflict averse, right? Going back to that belonging thing, right? They wanna feel like mm -hmm. they belong. They don't wanna give anyone bad news. Okay, now you've just created a culture where everyone lies to each other and backstabs to get to the top. Like something right. like that <laughs> happens very quickly from these very sort of normal human blind spots that we're all endowed mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so much of the work that I do starts with the idea that, okay, we're all confused. Um, we are all 
we all have greatness within us. Like I really do believe that. And the way that we're going to unleash that greatness for ourselves, for our employees, for the broader world is we're going to invest in clarity because the only thing that's going to help us work through that complexity, the only thing that's gonna help us build those capacities to deal with whatever's gonna be thrown at us is if we are continually taking the time to get clear with ourselves and the people around us about what's going on and what we're trying to do. Mm. And taking stock of the real, real reality of that. Not, not sort of the, yeah, we're gonna hand wave our way through this with a bunch of buzzwords, but like, no, like I am terrified because growth is dropping and it is damaging my ability to think about this clearly. Like when this happens, I tend to, you know, come up with a bunch of new product lines that confuses everyone. What are we gonna do about it? Like, how are yeah. we going to explore and actually at the same time deal with the fact that I'm going to be floundering, right? Like, what mm-hmm. do I need? And, you know, I'm not saying that that's an announcement you need to make to the whole company, but like at least with a handful of trusted sense makers, or even at least looking at it yourself or with a coach, how are you going to start taking that gap, that confusion that's happening? Because things are changing fast. Take it as an opportunity to learn about yourself. And then from mm-hmm. that awareness, start turning it into clarity, start turning it into an opportunity to invest in your people, start thinking about, okay, what do I need to do to help other people get comfortable with what they're like and start being able to unleash their own greatness, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you think about investing in capacity as a way to manage complexity, the best capacity you have is your people and their ability to work together. That's pretty much Mm -hmm. it. Like, Technology may be an input into that, but I think as many companies discover, your tech is only as good as your people's ability to use it and the clarity with which they do it. Otherwise you end up with like sitting on an expensive giant data pool that is totally useless and full of garbage and no one knows how to use it, but like it was expensive. So you can say you did a digital transformation and pat yourself on the back. So (laughs) like, so those two capacities, if you start with that question of, okay, to deal with complexity, how do I bring out the potential of my people and how do I make them work well together? Mm -hmm. It's what we just talked about. It's I'm going to consistently invest in clarity. I'm going to not dive into the tactics of the day-to-day, but instead be asking, what does this ecosystem need? What's unhealthy in it? What's breaking? What's not working the way that I would expect? And then Mm -hmm. rather than do the thing that most executives wanna do, which is go dive in and fix the problem, I'm actually going to learn about it. Like if this thing isn't working the way that I would expect, why isn't it working? When Mm -hmm. my people aren't bringing me things that are as good as I would want from them, why is that? Like, because either it's I'm bad at hiring or I haven't managed them well. Like those are the two options. Right. And so like, or the design (laughs) is bad. And so if we're not learning from that, then we're not improving. And Mm -hmm. the only way that, that companies can win, given how much change is on the menu right now, is if they're investing in those capacities and learning faster than the people around them. That's it. That's all you got. Well, and it comes right back to the same thing that we've had throughout this whole conversation about the extraordinary potence of acceptance. And yes. without labeling it with this shame, if we can accept just as, as this messy experience of being human, that there are some things that I'm really good at and there are some things that I'm really terrible at and there's some things I like to pretend that I'm really good at that I'm actually terrible at, that accepting that gives us an opportunity for learning but shaming shaming it 
is what is going to give us a little bit of this head in the sand and cover up and create more confusion and more um, bells and whistles, that, that tech investment, that hiring a coach and consultant to do everything except point out where my humanity lies, essentially. And I see this in large companies. I see this in our pursuit of health. You can see this in, in parenting because what is a, a family except for, you know, a little ecosystem of small business of trying to train and, and um, resource those in your little community. But all of this, we say something isn't happening the way I want to. It isn't working the way I want it to. It's everyone's fault but mine or the extraordinary potence of acceptance and the discomfort and the, ugh, I didn't want to look at that opportunity for change that comes from understanding the whole, the whole system better. You got it. Nailed it. Um, there's, a, there's a particular phrasing we like to use internally at Talentism a lot, which mm -hmm. is bad, stupid, lazy. So, and we, be it, we abbreviate everything, it's, or acronize everything, it's, mm -hmm. it's a BSL narratives. BSL narratives, once you recognize them, they are everywhere. They are the primary way that people actually deal with things that don't make sense to them. Mm -hmm. So, and they can be about others, but they can also be about ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, this went wrong. And it's because ah, I didn't work hard enough and I'm so stupid and I'm so bad. Why didn't I see that? Why don't I have more conviction? Why am I not nah, 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 like on and on and on and on and so yeah. forth. And, and we just do this to each other and others all the time. Something went wrong. We just generally tend to assume that it's because someone in the system was bad, stupid, or lazy, right? And like, I know I do this in traffic all the time, right? And this is like a known <laughs> thing, like traffic is literally complexity dynamics, like made real. And I always assume that there is some idiot at the front of the highway who's like driving 20 miles an hour in the left lane or something like that. And, <laughs> and, 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 and listen, sometimes it's true, but like, <laughs> The, those bad, stupid, lazy narratives are the thing that prevent us moving towards acceptance. They prevent mm -hmm. us from actually learning and seeing what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in some ways, maybe it sounds simple, but I know for me, when I am getting into that triggered place, just starting to build that muscle of like, okay, if I hear any variant of that bad, stupid, lazy narrative, pretty confident that I've dropped into a threat loop and I can't be taken seriously right now. Like, and, and listen, it doesn't mean I can get myself out of it necessarily, but at least I'm not going to fire off an email, like lighting into someone because of what I believe they did or didn't do. Like, yeah. at least it says, wait, stop. I'm going down the BSL line. Okay. Let's take a breath yeah. and maybe look at this when I actually have time to learn something. Right. Well, it, and it gives room and permission. I mean, we're not trying to say let's do some spiritual bypassing and everything is always good and everything is always an opportunity. We are humans. We are triggered. We do get into that limbic emotional loop of terror um, and that I love the bad, stupid, lazy. And uh, in, um, in my personal life, I, I use the phrase shooting all over yourself. Absolutely. And <laughs> because it's this, it's the same kind of thing. Oh, I should have done better. I should have been smarter. I should have tried harder. And it makes it this punitive dead end of failure. There's yes. no opportunity to learn and be better. It's, it's the, you're bad, suck less. Okay, next. Yes. And, and what does that actually do? What does that actually improve? Versus if we can get curious about this label we've given ourselves, this bad, this stupid, this lazy, this should, and say, well, what is that really covering? What hard truth 
are you trying to avoid and, and putting a nice societally accepted and honestly reinforced euphemism of, of just being bad instead of looking at, I'm not very detail oriented. I need someone to do proofreading for me. I need to learn how to be more detail oriented in some capacity. There is hard work hidden underneath that bad, stupid, lazy. Yeah. And, and often, you know, that hard work ends up, yeah, like it can lead to deeper things than you know, it might be, it might be about detail, but maybe it's actually the broader context. Maybe it's that I don't actually feel that my work is meaningful. Maybe it's that mm -hmm. sure of the place that I'm in, it just isn't a good fit. And I really shouldn't be there anymore. Um, yeah. I'm really actually not the right CEO to take the company to where it needs to go next. Like mm -hmm. there, there are real things. It's not that like, oh, you dropped the bad, stupid, lazy narratives and anything is possible. The whole point is that, yeah, not everything is possible, but the things that are possible for you and that are going to be the most beautiful, highest uses of who you are, those you're going to find on the other side of actually accepting the reality. Mm -hmm. And to go back to what you drew attention to when we were talking about chronic illness, um, it's hard and terrifying. You know, we, again, we want to skip to that end result of, um, and I'm, I'm wondering if you have a story like this when you left the hedge fund, uh, but coming up against these failures, these bad, stupid lazies of, I don't belong here. I suck at this. This is terrible. This is me and my stories when I was trying to be employed at some point. Um, and, and taking a look at that, there is a lot of, I'm not good at this. It feels like a failure. What is the one step I can now take to walk my way out towards mm -hmm. realizing what is the highest and best use of my time? Because there's, it's not some lightning bolt of, you know, I'm not meant to be a CEO. Yes, I am meant to be an acrobat. I will go over there. It's what lights me up. Maybe I'll take a, a, a movement class and then it will manifest from there. It's, it's, a, it's a complicated system, but it's about the capacity. Yes. No, you absolutely got it. Um, you were, you, there was a question in there, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I was curious. Yeah. So I was curious about, um, you know, even when you were leaving the hedge fund and, and you kind of said glibly at the very beginning of our conversation that you were, you know, it was great and you were doing wonderfully, but you were dying inside. I mean, that is, that, that seems like a great opportunity for a bad, stupid, la stupid, lazy narrative to just be dying inside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting. Gosh, I haven't I haven't thought about that one for a while, actually. Um, yeah, I think you know, in that in that particular case, the bad, stupid, lazy was more reactionary. I think against call it like the status quo, mm -hmm. like a sense of, and I think this will be probably familiar to some people, like you know our systems are so broken and capitalism is evil and like extractive industries are destroying everything and the system is rotten to its core and nothing works. And like, I have to go, you know, messianically save it all. Like that mm -hmm. was more the flavor. And, um, and I think in some ways I'm lucky that I think that propelled me towards a lot of learning because it opened mm -hmm. up my horizons to things I hadn't, I wouldn't have looked at otherwise, mm -hmm. but you know, since then, I've actually come around quite a bit to seeing like, wow, it's pretty extraordinary the way that we've been able to 
like radically reduce, you know, grinding poverty around the world. Like mm -hmm. child mortality has fallen dramatically in this current regime. And yes, it has problems. And yes, this isn't working. And yes, mm -hmm. we probably can't continue to extract the way we are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like, life is just kind of complex. Like mm -hmm. things that, there are things that work for some things and don't work for others. And systems are large and have inertia and like, Actually, what we've done is like pretty impressive as a species. And there's a lot of beautiful things that we want to try to, I think, preserve and try to and try to pass on. Um, mm -hmm. So. So to me, like part of and maybe this is a rambling answer to your question, but to me, it all ends up coming into the place where I think we're both going back to managing polarities, able to hold more polarities within us, able to hold a broader more complex set of ways of relating to the world and the narratives we hold about it. And at the same time, not getting stuck in the sense-making around all of that and being like, ah, I'm just going to go try this because I think I'd learned something from it. Like, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Cause when you talk about, you know, the whole being dismayed with the whole systems and structures that, that kind of where you were spurned to at that very beginning, you know, that's a bad, stupid, lazy for the structures at whole. And instead of having this very fatalistic approach of, well, it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway. So, you know, kind of like I was saying at the beginning, you, you looked for that learning. You looked for accepting what is and what else there is around it. What is the good? What is the bad? What is the complex nature of the system? And how can you be part of the capacity of improvement? Yes. And that last piece you're saying of how can you be part of that mm -hmm. is such to me is such a beautiful part of it because again so going back to the expectations bit i think so many of us get lost when we expect that we're going to solve things on our own mm -hmm. right or that we're going to come up with the answer or that we're yeah. going to do the thing that changes it or whatever it is and just like that literally never happens like never like even the most extraordinary, like, you know, locked up in a tower somewhere, kind of Eureka scientists, mm -hmm. they're still embedded within a community of knowledge and exchange that sets the pieces for that innovation. Mm -hmm. And like, so that question of what is mine to give to me is so powerful when we actually accept that, yeah, there's things I care about and things that pain me that I am not equipped to solve on my own, but there are gifts to give here. And actually there are things that I believe in and that light me up where that are aligned with my talents that I'm going to go experiment with. And yeah. just getting comfortable with that, I think is, is tremendously powerful, especially when we're talking about executives who do actually are in a position where like, yeah, there's a lot riding on them um, mm -hmm. and can feel like they need to solve everything all at once. Yeah. But it's finding that comfortable place within the system rather than this rugged individualist um, narrative that we have been taught so long. And I just, I really love that even if the, you're the most brilliant scientist in a tower still has to rely on supplies and community around him. And I was thinking immediately like, well, Batman still had Robin and, and the butler and who made all of his gadgets. And, you know, we, we all, even the, yeah, even the most um, iconic superhero story still has community. And that's where we meant to be. We're meant to be. So kind of to sum up this whole winding conversation, I mean, we, we took this concept and we put it on individualism and we put it on health and we put it on corporate entities. But when you talk about nurturing ecosystems of health and clarity and work and life, 
if you could just, you know, put that into your elevator pitch, put that into the, the message that we want our listeners to walk away with today, how, how would you sum that up in a daily practice almost? But something doesn't make sense to you, go talk to someone about it. I love that. It is so accessible and it really is what it all boils down to. You're not alone. And there is awareness and clarity in being reflected in someone else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. awesome. Jake, thank you so much for joining us today. I have loved this conversation, all the experience, um, you know, both personal journey and what you're helping with these skyrocketing companies um, kind of find a way to encourage another way of being and another way of engaging globally. Um, I think you are definitely doing your part to find capacity in these hairy, crazy systems. Thank you so much for your work and thank you so much for your wisdom. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time and a lovely conversation. Appreciate it. And thanks to everyone who joined us today. Thank you for tuning in. Um, we'll see you next time for our next episode of the Healing Ground Movement podcast. And until then, something doesn't make sense, go find an ear to bend. I bet you'll get some answers. Be well. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard and got a little something out of it. Now remember, the information expressed in these interviews is for informational and not diagnostic or treatment purposes. However, I hope you find that having the right information and resources can go a long way to helping you on your healthcare journey. Ask the right questions and seek out professional help.